Hey y'all, good morning. I know it's early. It's early for me too. I actually, whether y'all believe it or not, I've been up all night working. I haven't even been to sleep yet. So it's, you know, early. That's why I want to go ahead and get this out the way. Make sure I do what God tells me to do. That's why I want to go ahead and get this book reading out the way so I can make sure that the knowledge get out there for the kingdom of God. Because once I shut down, I'm going to be out of it. So, I love you guys. I can get right into it. If some of y'all at work, y'all can catch it on the replay. About to jump right into it. Chapter 5, Kingdom Concept Number 2. Understanding the Kingdom Concept of Lord. One of the most common words used in scripture is the word Lord. This word does not exist in democracies, socialist societies, or republics, except in the word landlord, in reference to one who owns land. Landlord is the only common remnant of kingdoms in modern governments and Western societies. Yet this concept of Lord is one of the fundamental principles of a kingdom. Every kingdom must have a king. But it is also true that every king is automatically a lord. It is this quality of lordship that distinguishes a king from a president, a prime minister, a mayor, and a governor. As a matter of fact, a king's lordship makes him different from any other kind of human leader. Lordship makes a king unique. In the last chapter, we talked about a king's sovereignty, how a king is free from external control, and he can do whatever he pleases with accountability to no one except himself. A king's sovereignty is absolute. He is neither voted into nor voted out of power. Sovereignty is his by right of birth. The same is true of a king's lordship. All kings are automatically lords. So what's the difference between a king and a lord? Lordship is only one aspect of a king's overall identity and status, but it is one of the most important ones. One way to put it is to say that king relates to dominion, while Lord relates to domain. The word dominion refers to a king's authority, his power. The word domain refers to the territory, the property, the geographical area over which his authority extends. A king exercises authority, dominion, over a specific geographical area, domain, and within that area, his authority is absolute. Without a domain, there is no king. A king is a king only so far as he has something to rule over. What good does it do to have authority if you have nowhere to exercise it? In that case, you really don't have authority. The most you have is potential authority. Until you have a physical domain over which to rule, your so-called authority is little more than theory. If the word Lord relates to a king's domain, then the lordship of a king is tied up in his territory. To put it another way, if kingship has to do with authority then lordship has to do with ownership. Let me explain. If a king must have a domain in order to be a king, then all true kings must have and own territory. This is what we call the kingdom lordship principle. You cannot be a king unless you own property. It is not the same simply to exercise rule and authority over a geographical region. Presidents do that. Prime ministers do that. Governors do that. But presidents, prime ministers, and governors do not own the territory over which they rule, and therein lies the difference. 
Kings personally own the physical domain over which they reign, and that is what makes them not only kings, but also lords. So king and property go together, and the word lord defines the king's identity as owner of his domain. As lord, a king literally and legally owns everything in his domain, the forests and the meadows, the mountains and the valleys, the rivers and the streams, the crops and the livestock, even the people and the houses they live in. Everything in a king's domain belongs to him. Because of this, a king has absolute and unquestionable control over his domain. This goes back to a king's sovereign authority. A king is sovereign by right of birth, but he is also sovereign by right of ownership. The fact of a king's sole ownership of his domain carries a couple of significant implications that are easily lost by people who have grown up in a democracy. First, and rather obvious, is that if the king owns everything, then no one in the kingdom owns anything. In a true kingdom, there is no such thing as private property ownership. Kingdom citizens are stewards, not owners. They may occupy the land, farm it, mine its minerals, ores, and precious gems, build houses and places of business on it, and carry on all the other normal activities of human communities. But they do all of these only by the king's permission and good pleasure. Ultimately, everything belongs to him. Second, if the king owns everything, he can give anything to anyone at any time according to his own sovereign choice. In a democracy, if the prime minister or the president gives you property as a personal favor, it is called corruption. But if a king gives you property, it is called royal favor. And no one can question it or protest it because, as owner, it is his prerogative to do as he pleases. Not only does a king possess the authority to distribute his property anytime, anywhere, to anyone, as much as he wishes, but he also can switch his property from one person to another. He can take something from one person and give it to you, or he can take something from you and give it to somebody else. Because a king's dominion is so closely tied to territory, his wealth is measured by the size and richness of his domain. That is why kings always want to expand their kingdom. They seek to increase their wealth. Think about the British, French, and Spanish kingdoms of the last several hundred years. The kings of those realms dispatched ships and established colonies all over the world. Why? Because they wanted to enlarge the borders and fill the coffers of their kingdoms. The larger and richer their domain, the greater their reputation and glory. King and Lord Although I have been speaking about lordship from the context of earthly kingdoms, everything I have said so far applies with even greater validity to the kingdom of heaven and its king. We have already seen that God is the king of heaven and earth by divine right of creation. He is king of all because he created all, and because every king is automatically a lord, the king of all is also the lord of all. He owns everything because he made everything. The Bible, the constitution of the kingdom of heaven, plainly identifies God as king and lord of all. One of the most common Hebrew words used to refer to God in the Old Testament is Adonai, which literally means proprietor or owner. It is usually translated Lord. The personal name for God, Yahweh, although difficult to translate with complete accuracy, carries the same idea of master, owner, or Lord. This biblical picture of God as Lord is further enhanced by the fact that in most Bible versions, the personal name Yahweh, wherever it occurs, is replaced with the word Lord. 
This is in keeping with an ancient Jewish tradition where devout Jews so respected and honored God's name that they would not even speak it or read it aloud to ensure that they did not inadvertently violate the third commandment by misusing his name. Instead, they substituted the word Adonai, or Lord. So, over and over, the truth is hammered home. God is the Lord. God is the Lord. God is the Lord. This truth is reiterated even in the most basic confession of faith for a Jew, recited every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. So in this way, the Jews were reminded every day that their God was owner of all. This included heaven and earth. An ancient Hebrew poet expressed it this way. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. Psalm 115, 15 and 16, emphasis added. As maker and owner of heaven and earth, God could give any portion of it to anyone he chose. And he chose to give the earth to man, not for man to be owner, but ruler, manager, or steward. Here are some additional references verifying God's rights to lordship over the property of earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Psalm 47, 7-9 And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Exodus 7, 5 O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8, 1a. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Psalm 16, 2. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, 26-28 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Psalm 23, 1 Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Psalm 24, 7 through 10. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Haggai 2, 8. In the same way, as the Old Testament reveals God as King and Lord and owner of all, the New Testament reveals Jesus Christ as Lord and owner of all. First of all, as we have already seen, Jesus came announcing the arrival and re-establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth, something only the king himself could do. And because a king is automatically a lord, this means that Jesus is lord also. In addition, the most common Greek word for lord, kurios, is applied to Jesus repeatedly in the New Testament. 
Kurio signifies having power. It also means one who possesses ultimate authority, master. Everything the Old Testament says about God as Lord, the New Testament says about Jesus. The lordship of Jesus is also by creative rights and was a natural result of his role in the creation of all things, both seen and unseen. In essence, we do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord by creative right, whether we acknowledge him or not. In his pre-existence, before he came to earth, Jesus was identified as the Word. It was in this dimension that he was the source of creation. Let us read the record of his creative activity that gives him lordship rights. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis 1.3 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John 1, 1 through 3. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3a. Here is ample evidence that Jesus, as the eternal word, was responsible for the creation of the universe and for sustaining it. One familiar story about Jesus drives this point home. Only a week before his death, Jesus was preparing to enter Jerusalem but he intended to do it in a very specific way. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Mark 11, 1 through 6. In this story, Jesus acted in his authority as Lord. There is no indication that he had prearranged this with the owner of the colt, or that he asked anyone's permission. As Lord of all, he owned the colt anyway. Jesus just told his disciples, bring me the colt. When challenged, all the disciples had to say was, the Lord needs it. That was all it took. The owners released the colt. In those days, animals such as that colt were valuable commodities as beasts of burden and as transportation. They were like a car is to us today. So untying that colt was no small matter. The modern day equivalent would be as if Jesus had said, go down to the corner where you will find a brand new silver Mercedes sport coupe. The keys are already in it. Bring it here to me. In the end, one word from the owner of the colt was all that was necessary. The manager steward of the colt let it go. Another New Testament passage also presents Jesus clearly as Lord of all. It is found in a letter written by Paul, the kingdom of heaven's ambassador to the Gentiles, to kingdom citizens in the city of Philippi. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who... Being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness.
and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all. Living under a Lord. It is the lordship aspect of a kingdom that makes living in a kingdom better than a republic or any other form of national administration or rulership. Lordship in a kingdom protects the citizenship from competition with their fellow citizens for national resources. It destroys such elements as jealousy, fear, deceit, and hoarding. In a true kingdom, the Lord owns all resources and distributes the same as he determines. Whenever he gives resources to a citizen, it is never for ownership, but for stewardship. Submission to a king as Lord positions the citizen to receive from the king. From a kingdom standpoint, then, the most important confession any of us could ever make is to declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. Ambassador Paul stated this explicitly in his letter to the believers in Rome when he wrote, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 By saved, Paul means redeemed, bought back, salvaged, restored from the estrangement of our rebellion against God, the King, into a right relationship with Him. The key affirmation in that process is our acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord of everything, including our lives and our destiny. But if we say, Jesus is Lord, what does that mean in practical terms? What does it mean to live under a Lord? The only experience most Westerners have with a Lord of any kind is with a landlord. If you now live or have ever lived in rental property, you know that the landlord is the landowner or the landowner's direct representative who exercises the landowner's authority, which amounts to the same thing, the person you pay rent to and to whom you are accountable for the way you treat his property. Why? Because you do not own the property, the landlord does. Dealing with a landlord provides a small taste of what it would be like to live all your life under a lord. If you say, Jesus is Lord, you are acknowledging his authority over you, as well as your responsibility to obey him. There is no such thing as lordship without obedience. If he is Lord, you cannot say, Lord but, or Lord except, or Lord wait. If he is Lord, the only thing you can say is, Lord, yes. Jesus himself reiterated this truth throughout his public ministry. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9:23b. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10:37 and 38. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Matthew 8, 21 and 22. If Jesus is Lord, he must receive first priority in your life. He is above every other love and every other loyalty. He is above every goal, dream, and ambition. You cannot be a disciple and say, Lord, first let me... He must be first in everything. Otherwise, he is not truly Lord of your life, regardless of what you say. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Luke 6:46. You cannot call him Lord and then start making excuses for not obeying him. You can't claim that he owns you and then go ahead and do whatever you please. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no such thing as a weekend citizen. You do not follow him one time and not another depending on your preference. If Jesus is Lord, you cannot live for him on Sunday and for yourself the rest of the week. Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. The Lordship of Christ is a 24-7 proposition. There is no other schedule. Living under a Lord also means giving up all concepts of personal ownership. This does not mean you have to sell your house or sell your car or give away all your personal possessions. It does mean learning not to take a proprietary view toward these things. The King of Heaven is a righteous and benevolent Lord who graciously allows us to use and fully appropriate His riches and resources and all good things. That is one of our rights as kingdom citizens. We can enjoy all of these things without measure as long as we remember who owns them. The moment we begin to think that they belong to us, however, we set ourselves up for trouble. If we think ownership is ours, we make ourselves a Lord. This takes us out of alignment with the will and character of the king, because in his kingdom there can be only one Lord. What happens when we think of ourselves as owners? In our dog-eat-dog -dog culture, it means we feel we have to fight for what we get, hoard what we have, and guard it anxiously from fear that someone will take it away. And our neighbors do the same thing. We live in fear of economic downturns, inflation, downsizing, and never having enough. This is not kingdom thinking. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no economic crisis and there are no shortages. With a king who owns everything, how could there be? When we relinquish our sense of ownership and acknowledge God as the owner and ourselves as stewards, it relieves us of the pressure of having to worry about how we are going to make it because we are now depending on him for our welfare, and he is a benevolent and generous lord of infinite resources. Relinquishing ownership then also puts us into the position of full access to those resources. As we learn to give and receive and transfer at his will, he shares with us freely and abundantly. But a hoarding sense of personal ownership that shouts, Mine, cuts us off from those same resources. Which position would you rather be in? Letting go of personal ownership also nourishes and releases a generous spirit within us. If we are only stewards and not owners, we can give freely as the Lord has given freely to us, knowing that He, who has no limitations, can replace what we give to others. His reputation as King and Lord rides on how well He cares for His citizens, and He will give special care to those citizens who reflect His character by giving as He gives. As a matter of fact, the best time to give is when things are tight personally, because that is when you acknowledge that He owns even what you don't have. The greatest sign that you truly believe that Jesus is Lord is by how much you are willing to get rid of. You have learned how to live under a Lord when you can give freely, without hesitation, regret, or fear, and say to the Lord of all with a joyful and willing spirit, It's all yours. It's all yours. Seven points in summary. In summary, here are seven fundamental principles of lordship. One, a king personally owns everything in his domain. There is no private ownership in a kingdom. Everything belongs to the king. Two, use of anything in a kingdom is a privilege. 
If the king owns everything, then anything in that kingdom that we use is not by right, but by a privilege granted by the king. 3. A king can give or distribute anything to anyone in his kingdom. Why? Because he owns it. He can shift things around any way he pleases. This is why we need to hold on to our possessions lightly. They really are not ours. Sometimes the king will test us by telling us to give up something he has given us. Our response, obedience or disobedience, will reveal whether or not we really believe he is Lord. If we obey, we show that we believe he owns everything, and that he not only can replace what we give, but even multiply it. 4. Submission to a king's lordship means that we have no right to ourselves. That is why the greatest confession we can ever make is the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. The moment we say those words, we are acknowledging that we have no more right to our own life. It now belongs to Christ. We have put ourselves willingly under his control and direction and are at his beck and call. He can help himself to our lives any time he wants. 5. Obedience is acknowledgement of lordship. When we obey the king, we are simply saying to him, You are Lord, and my life is yours. Your wish is my command. 6. Thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of the king's lordship. Daily thankfulness for food, water, clothing, shelter, and other daily needs reveals that we believe that the king owns all and is the source of all we have. 7. The word Lord can never be used with the word but. Those two words are impossible together. We cannot say, I love you, Lord, but, or else he is not Lord. We cannot claim him as Lord and then make excuses for not obeying him. The only appropriate word to go with Lord is yes. Either he is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Principles. 1. All kings are automatically lords. 2. Kingship has to do with authority. Lordship has to do with ownership. 3. All true kings must have and own territory. 4. As lord, a king literally and legally owns everything in his domain. 5. If the king owns everything, then no one in the kingdom owns anything. 6. If the king owns everything, he can give anything to anyone at any time, according to his own sovereign choice. 7. A king's wealth is measured by the size and richness of his domain. 8. God, the King of Heaven, is King and Lord of all. 9. Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all. 10. The most important confession any of us could ever make is to declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. 11. There is no such thing as lordship without obedience. 12. If Jesus is Lord, he must receive first priority in your life. 13. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. 14. Living under a Lord also means giving up all concepts of personal ownership. 15. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no economic crisis and there are no shortages. 16. Relinquishing ownership puts us into the position of full access to all of heaven's resources. 17. Letting go of personal ownership also nourishes and releases a generous spirit within us. All right, y'all. That was chapter five, which was great, by the way. 
Uh, I'm going to jump right into it because I am tired. Like I told y'all, I have not been asleep. God had me up working all night. It's about to be 9 o'clock. So, um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know how to get into the kingdom of God, the first step to entering into the kingdom of God is first you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No man comes to the Father except through the Son. Second, you have to believe that he died on the cross for your sins. He died for you. He died for me. He died for the world. Thirdly, you have to ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, and to save you, and you will be saved. That's the first step of entering into the kingdom. After that, you have to keep getting on these podcasts, keep getting on YouTube, Tina Smoot. It's the name. Hit that know the bell, like, subscribe, comment below. But there's plenty of other people with YouTube channels out there, too. So I love you guys. You guys have a great I don't need what's today, y'all. You guys have a great Wednesday. It's Haunt Wednesday. You guys have a great Wednesday. I love you guys. Good night for me. <laughs>